Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Globalrecon.net, fieldcraftsurvival.com. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover, the co-host of the show. We have a good episode for you guys today. We're going to have Travis Osborne back on the show. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we had Travis on a couple of episodes ago, and he was the Special Forces medic who treated Marcus Luttrell during the uh, Lone Survivor situation. So uh, aside from being a medic, Travis is also a dog handler in Special Forces, So, and, and him and Mike served together and... They have some experiences to share with you guys on uh, on their experience with dogs in combat. Um, so, Mike, I'll hand it over to you. Hey, guys. It's Mike from Fieldcraft. Uh, glad to be on again. Uh, thanks for all the support. Uh, great episode with Travis being on again. Uh, like John said, former 18 Delta. He's basically done everything in special operations, but, uh, but you know, one of the specific roles that he played is – kind of leading the way for the commanders and extremist force dog program, uh, especially for B23, the third group side of it. Uh, me and me and Travis have a long history together. We started out in SF together in the same, uh, they call it a line company, but it's just a special forces company. Um, him and Mare Ops and, and, and scuba team and me on the mountain team. But from there, we both ended up in the SIF together. And I think our first experience with, with dogs uh, at least from my perspective, our, our first experience with dogs in, in a, uh, a combat capacity was when in 2007 we were working for a task force, a joint task force, going out uh, nightly killing and capturing bad guys. Uh, we were in Iraq, and I remember the target set. I remember it started out, you know, it's like a kind of a routine target set, which typically nothing's routine about it, but routine on infill. But then I remember immediately as we were starting to land, we were, we were offset from the objective. We started taking fire and I heard it over the comms and it was kind of sporadic at first, but I know one of our little bird pilots, our A6 pilots peeled off and basically mowed down a whole uh, intersection full of dudes that were shooting at him and our, our helicopters. So we didn't find out obviously about that later, but at the time I was a sniper and Travis was uh, on the objective set as well. And we, we set up containment without going into, into too many operational details. Uh, we, we set up containment and we had the bad guys surrounded. And eventually, I remember specifically me and a guy named Rob, I'll just use his first name because he's still in, but me and Rob went up to a point and we had a Spectre gunship that was illuminating infrared hot spots in front of us. We had pretty much annihilated the, the target set with grenades, with you know small arms. Hell, I think uh, we even hit it with a, a thermobaric law. Um, so we had pretty much devastated the target and assumed everybody was uh, either you know dead or or on their way. As we cleared across the objective, one of the Spectre gunships illuminated heat in front of me and Rob. And I remember our troop sergeant major Will pulled us back. And we offset, and that's when uh, Rick, who's a retired dog handler for a joint task force, had his dog Vinny come up online, and Vinny uh, started hopping through the, the the reeds in Iraq. If nobody's familiar with it, it's palm trees and reeds, and and that's where all the bad guys hide. Well, the hot spot that he had 
that the, the gunship that the aircraft had saw was a hot spot that was moving. So at first I, I remember looking at Rob thinking, you know, or looking at Rick and Rob thinking we have nothing here. You know, there's, there's probably, it's probably just a body, but it turned out not to be a body. And I remember, uh, basically Vinny jumped up in the air and like pounced down on what was a bad guy and all these bad guys, I think there was 12 or 13 of them. Um, but all the bad guys had suicide vests, had chest rigs, had a solo boots. Had, they were pretty squared away at high speed. I mean, these guys were foreign fighters ready to get their fight on. And I can't remember exactly how Vinny was killed, whether it was a low order uh, suicide vest or a fragmentation grenade, but we heard a gunshot and then we heard an explosion right where me, Rob, Will, and a couple other snipers would have walked right across. So, you know, I, there's without a doubt, Rick's dog paid the ultimate sacrifice and saved our lives. And, and, and it could have killed uh, potentially more. The guy was armed. The guy had a suicide vest on. Um, after that happened, we pulled back and, you know, reluctantly we had to leave Vinny behind. And I remember me and Rob wanted to push forward to, to re- try to recover, cover, uh, Vinny. And I remember specifically Rick grabbing us and saying, don't go forward. That's what they're there for. And this is a guy who worked with this dog, you know, this dog's entire career, but you know, with tears in his eyes, he was saying this and he pulled us back and then we just devastated the target with uh, 105 and we just basically leveled it, did a, did a battle battle damage assessment and on Xfield dropped J-Dams on it. Hey, so but like I remember, the, the 105, yeah. that's from the, the gunship, right? Yeah, the gunship went Winchester, which means they just basically annihilated the target set. Uh, initially, we had dropped 105 millimeter um, rounds on the target set, but they were deep penetrating. So they were basically exploding in the mud and and not having the desired effect. So they, the next go round, they we basically air bursted over the over the target set, which basically leveled the place and killed killed everybody on on the set. Um, we pulled back. We did. We came forward and did a battle damage assessment. Luckily, recovered Benny's body. And then you know, um, I remember draping him with a flag. We loaded him on the helicopter. He was behind me. We flew back to uh, our base, and I remember it was pretty, pretty humbling experience getting him off the aircraft, and the entire task force, including everybody who was there to receive us, uh, saluting Vinny as they pulled him off the aircraft. But these dogs play an important role. In 2010, um, I was in Afghanistan with the Joint Task Force, and the same thing happened with a dog named Spido, where you know he saved his his handler's life, and and it, it's happened a dozen um, or more other times. Hundreds of special operations dogs have been killed in combat and have saved their handlers' lives or their, their teammates' lives. So the great thing today is we have the experience of Travis, who has not only been a dog handler in special forces, but was kind of there in the beginning when the commanders and extremist force set up this program. Um, and it kind of went to group instead of going to the SIF, but eventually him and another buddy of ours came back to the SIF and were basically dog handlers for a direct action force. And uh, he kind of led the way in this whole, this whole program. So you'll get a unique perspective from Travis. Travis, you on, you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. That, that, that story, that, that's pretty accurate, right? I can't, you know, just from my recollection, I remember, remember how it went down and it's funny, me and Travis just talked about yeah. this, but we were on parts of the objective, but probably have different perspectives 
perceptions of exactly how things went down. Yeah, the way the way you said it, it's pretty much right on. Um, I just remember them going in. You were closer to it than anything where I was. I was just kind of hearing it on the radio and the way we were set up. Um, the only thing I do remember is him sending the dog in, the uh, the gunfire uh, explosion, and then him calling the dog, recalling the dog, recalling the dog, recalling the dog, and then coming back up and basically said level the place because he's not coming back. Yeah, he, that, that he, was, I remember Rick's. He he was trying to hold it together, but man, I can't imagine that's like losing a teammate. I mean, it was it was hard on him. I remember that. Yep. Um. So, let's talk about your history, Trav. Like, how did you get into? I, I remember the time frame that you you and uh, AJ try to try to start the program. How did you get interested in the program? It, was it that specific moment that you saw the relevancy, or? What made you want to get into the program, and, and then how'd you go about doing it? Yeah, so it actually started, that was what, 2007? It started the 2006 when I first got over to the SIF. Uh, we were back there again, and the SIF didn't have their own dogs at the time. We didn't have any dogs at the time, so we were using another element's canines. They were they were good enough to to say, hey, if you guys are going out, we'll jump on a mission with you because we don't want to leave you without this asset. And those of us in the SIF at the time were like, man, what, what's the big deal with these dogs? We, we've never worked with dogs. We've never had dogs out there because it wasn't something that was real prevalent in special operations as a whole at the time. But then from that trip, after seeing what those things could do and the, the asset that they were and the capabilities that they gave you, it was one of those things I was like, man, we, we need dogs. And I mean, you can be a dog lover all day long, but I've, but, but at that point I'm like, this is an amazing tool that we're missing out on. So when we came back from that trip, uh, me and another guy started talking. Uh, we put a whole, we tried to put a whole concept together. We started making phone calls, try to get approvals. Cause my plan is I wanted to, the the SIF to buy two dogs and I was I volunteered right then I was like hey look I will go get the training I will be the dog handler me and this other guy will take care of these dogs so that would give the the capability to the SIF of an internal capability instead of having to use in these external people so we got approvals from commanders and tank commanders and I think it made it up to group the group commander I'm not really for sure until we got the phone call and they basically started yelling at us and telling us that we were retarded um, that that wasn't going to happen, that they weren't just going to go buy the dogs. Then we very shortly got the other call that said, hey, look, you guys need to you know, chill out on this because it's coming. It's already a program that's been funded at USASOC, and all the groups are going to get a canine detachment. So yeah, at, that, at that point, um, that was when the – was it 4th Battalion at the time – when basically they were standing up all these enablers and all these additional assets, which included, you know, sades and, um, you know, dogs and all these extra programs. Um, did you, did, is that where you started your training? Did, did you and a couple other guys from the SIF go to that training as SIF guys, knowing that you're coming back to be handlers for the SIF? Yeah, that was it. Um, it worked a little bit differently at the time, because all the enablers, the 4th Battalions really weren't around, so the enablers were kind of scattered and underneath different units. Now then, 
recently, I've probably seen the last couple of years, exactly like what you said, all those uh, enablers have come underneath an umbrella. And under that umbrella, they're all in, they've all gotten stuck in that fourth battalion together, which is better to have them all under one place. Uh, so we left the, actually left the SIF and got assigned to the group support battalion because that's where the K-9 program was at. But when we went through the training, it was inherent. It was basically stated that, hey, we're coming over here, but our job is to basically support the SIF when they need K-9. So myself and the other guy, AJ, were kind of earmarked as those to support the SIF. So at, at what point did were, were dogs integrated into the special operations apparatus? Like, did this happen during the, the GWAT or before the GWAT? Like, how, how did that go uh, come about? Oh, it was absolutely during the war. Um, there wasn't any dogs at the time prior, actually probably for SF, prior to 2000. What, eight, 2007, 2008, um, special forces didn't have any canine capabilities. And w- would you say that fighting the kind of war that you guys are fighting with the um, insur- insurgency, you know, there, there's no clear cut enemy, you know, they're not wearing uniforms. Do are, are dogs more effective in that kind of war versus the more conventional? you know, World War II type of war? No, I really don't. I don't think so. I think dogs have a place pretty much in any combat situation, in any war that we've ever been in. There's been, dogs have been with man during war since the beginning. And even in the U.S., there was dog units, canine units in the Marines. There was canine units in the Army. And this was during World War II um, when they are all over. Uh, when the Marines were island hopping, I know they used a lot of Dobermans. Uh, when and when the the army was, you know, going through Europe, I, they had a lot of dogs with them there too. Um, but the problem with the dogs is they come and go. Uh, so during when we need them, you know, there'll be units stood up, and then over a period of time, because they're expensive. I mean, it's a live animal that you're having to take care of. They're time-consuming, they take a lot of training, and it's a difficult job to have. So during these lulls when we're not using them, a lot of times these units get disbanded and the that asset disappears. And then something else will start, like GWAT, and after a few years, that asset will then be coming back. And then everybody will be like, hey, why don't we start using dogs? And then the next thing you know, every unit out there is screaming to have a dog and some don't even want to leave the wire or go on missions if they're not, if they don't have that canine with them. Well, wow, so they're, they're very effective then. Um, what, so do you own dogs? Like since you've been out, you've just got out of the army. Do, do you have dogs? And, are, and if you do, are they these special operations dogs that you have in your home? So my, working dog his name was Rocco uh there's some pictures of him up on my Instagram stuff uh, he was an amazing dog that dog was a war dog like all the way through he'd had his tail shot off uh that, that we had to dock his tail cuz it'd gotten shot 
Uh, when he was on a bike, he didn't even come off the bike. He had a hole in his ear from an explosion. He broke one of his teeth off in a guy's head. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, this dog was, he was that dog that would be in the glass case that says break in case of war. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that dog now? Do you have him? No, unfortunately, like, uh, like I was getting ready to say is I love that dog. Uh, I trusted that dog with my life. Uh, but he was a war dog and every three to four months he was so dominant that he would come out of the kennel and he'd want to test me just to make sure I was still in charge. Um, and I loved him for it because that put him in a situation that there was nobody else in this world that could beat him is the way kind of he, cause he was so dominant, you know, except for me. And so that would put him in, in the mindset Basically, when you go into a situation, there was no fear because he was most the most dominant thing there. That's why I loved him. But that also led for me not to take him. I have a wife and a kid. I trust him with my life. I trust him with their lives when I am there because I am the boss to him. They would have fallen farther down on the totem pole as far as seniority's rank in his pack which would have required a lot of training, a lot of detraining. And the other part of that is he wasn't done working. I, it would have been a disservice to him for me to put him in a backyard and in a kennel or whatever I need to do to get him detrained and then just let him run around the backyard. I mean, that dog loved to work. He loved his job. And I would have felt bad about doing it. So he actually got adopted. Uh, I believe it was a Pittsburgh Police Department came down to our kennels one day we kind of put the word out that we had a couple dogs that we were going to get rid of uh they let that dog go because there's a lot of guys that didn't want to didn't want to deal with my dog because he, he was kind of an asshole so they ended up letting him go when i left and the pittsburgh police department came down and said they not needed a dog that could clear a bar fight they had a lot of gang problems and bars and uh we said we just got we got the dusted dog for you so we, we brought Rocco out and they looked at him and they immediately wanted him. And so as far as I know, he's a police officer in Pittsburgh and his handler's name is Rocco. So it's Rocco and Rocco. Nice. And, yeah. And they're doing good things up there. Nice. So with, with these special operations dogs, they go through a selection process just like uh, a soldier would. And and what separates a special operations dog from a normal dog? They might as well be another breed. They might as well be another animal. Everybody thinks, oh, it's a dog. A dog is a dog. These dogs are so far from what you have in your house, in your living room. They think differently. They act differently. Their drives are so high. Uh, that's kind of the way they act is what their drives are. Some of the drives they have prey drive that you know they hunt so hard things are running away. It's and they're a completely different animal, so the selection process for them is pretty long and arduous. Most of our dogs come from Europe. Um, we send uh, groups of people over, call them dog buys, dog trips. They'll go over there because it's a really big deal in Europe for the sport training world or the canine protection training world. I mean, there's people do it. They train these dogs Monday, Monday through Thursday, take Friday off, and then they have their club meeting 
on Saturday and they go train them all together. And it's all about winning titles. And so then they'll want to get rid of the dogs after they train them, win the titles or during the training, they might find some reason that they don't like the dog that maybe it's not going to win a title, but we'll go look at it. And it may be that exact trait that we want that's going to keep him from winning the title. So we'll, we'll buy him and bring him back. So we go on these big dog bite trips. So that's kind of the first selection process is we go see the dogs, um, the dog buyers go see the dogs and bring a whole bunch of them and then bring them back to the States. Then there's a kennel that we use that's contracted through the military uh, as the, the trainers. And so then the dogs go there and they train for probably about a year, six months to a year prior to us ever seeing them. And that's the training where they're doing more bite training. They're doing environmental training. They're also doing explosives training. So that's where they're learning how to detect explosives. And at any point during this time, if the dog's not cutting it, then they get sent out. So then it comes time for dog selection uh, with all their training. So we'll go up uh, with a prospective new handler um, because the handler is getting ready to start school. So some of the senior guys on the team and also our trainer will go up there. Uh, these dogs then basically go through what I like to call the, dog, the, the doggy columbine. So just like your NFL Columbine, they bring each dog out. He struts his stuff, goes on bites, finds bombs, runs, jumps, does obedience, does everything. And all of us kind of sit there and we're, we're grading them as to what we want them. So that's kind of the next selection. Because at the same time, we're looking at the dog and the handler and which two are going to make the best team. Not just the best dog, but which one's going to be the best teammate for that handler. And then that's when the dog gets selected. So then we'll go through and be like, yep, that's the one we want for him. So that's the final selection. And then, then the dog and the handler together for the rest of the, I believe it's 10 weeks for the actual handler's course. And again, at any point in time in there, if that dog's not cutting it, then you know he'd be sent back and another dog would be brought up. And uh, the, the dogs that don't get selected or they don't make it into – Special forces, are they still used in the military or in uh, like a police force or something across the states? Yes. So those dogs that we don't select go right back into any of the selections for the police departments uh, and any of the other, the other people that, that, that use that kennel that we get our dogs from. And so the, 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 uh, I know like for, let's say, special operations medics, you guys kind of have a – do you go to the same program? I, I believe that that's correct. I don't know if I'm if I'm right or wrong there. You, you guys have like the same program and no matter what the branch is and then you'll go back to your respective units. Is it the same thing for the dog program or everyone has their separate uh, training programs? Well, uh, some of them are separate. Some of them are together. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, so there's a certain – uh, national unit, most of the national units have their own training programs. And so then, but then like, I know the, some of the other ones, I know MARSOC, special forces. Uh, I'm not for sure. Oh, the Rangers, the Ranger regiment. So most of the USASOC units and MARSOC units use the same kennel. And that's, we get all our dogs from the same place. Travis, can you, um, can you highlight specifically? Cause I know, 
after you after you were um, using the dogs and the SIF, uh, can you highlight any specific stories that stand out to you with you? And uh, I mean, I'm sure there's dozens of them, that, but does any stand out to you where maybe Rocco or one of the dogs uh, outside of Vinny saved, saved your life or saved the team's life? Yeah, so actually most of the best ones, because really after I got the dog and got to the dog program, got trained up, and got the uh, the actual additional training after it. When I came back, the the use of the dogs in Iraq was basically being closed down because they were saying it was too much of an American presence. So most of the best stuff that I did work with, I, that I did with the dogs, was in Afghanistan. And like Rocco, just some specific stories. We were walking one night. And me and Rocco were out front. We were, we were moving down the road, so I had him out searching on a uh, an IED search. Uh, so he was searching the road, and when we were moving, it was at night. Uh, we came around a corner, and I just called him back to me to let the other guys catch up. And a guy walked out, and so the interpreter was yelling at him like, hey, what are you doing out here? And they were having this conversation. And I don't know really what set the dog off actually i kind of do so humans anytime we become afraid we emit a pheromone like i can't smell it and you can't smell it but a dog can smell it and if he's a working dog like ours like rocco it's like catnip to that dog that means that something's about to happen it means that he's going to make somebody pain he's going to make somebody pay and it's going to hurt and they get really excited so we call it fear scent uh and it'll draw a dog, like an attack dog like that. It'll draw them to it because the person that's most afraid is the person that he wants to scare even more. And so I guess he picked up on the odor because he immediately just started going crazy, just barking, jumping, you know, just going into attack mode, getting ready to, to move on this guy. And we've just been sitting there talking to this guy, and he usually doesn't do that. And as he's sitting there barking, because we hadn't moved forward, the guy was still about 15, 20 meters away from us. And as he's sitting there, Rocco starts going crazy, and it did it keyed the guy off and scared him. He immediately reached back behind him, grabbed an AK, started shooting, which triggered an ambush that we were about to walk into. Oh wow! Yeah, so there's about five of them, five or six of them with a PK. Triggered the ambush. We were about 20 meters outside the ambush, so we made managed to make it to a, a small wall. I had Rocco pinned down underneath me. Uh, another guy that was with me. I was walking point with me, was on the ground beside me. We ended up in a little pile because we just had kind of a bend in the wall to hide in. And we're returning fire. Uh, the guys behind us managed to move up, return fire. And those, those guys broke contact. As soon as they broke contact out of the cover of the buildings, the AC-130 up above picked them up and finished them off. Nice. So that's, I mean, when you talk about that fear scent, I mean, that's just instinctual behavior that dogs can pick up and sense that we can, it's just outside of our scope and, and perception. So, man, that's insane. So that those dogs, um, besides, you know, things that they, you know, are naturally ingrained in them, what additional traits or additional skill sets are they trained? Because I know that they have different types of dogs, right? They have like they have sniff dogs, they have bite dogs. Are, are special forces dogs specifically like well-rounded, like Jack of all trade, like green berets are? Yes. So the, 
the canines that are used in special operations, we call them, uh, for SF, we call them SF MPCs or MPCs, which is multi-purpose canine. Mm. So throughout the rest of the dog world, you have single-purpose dogs or dual-purpose dogs. Uh, so obviously single purpose, they have one job in life and that's usually a bomb dog. It's an SSD. Uh, and that's what their whole job in life is. They're not a bomb dog or they're not a bite dog. Uh, those, that's when you'll see a lot of like labs, um, different types of gun dogs. Uh, you get some weird ones out there. If they, if they have good drives and they smell bombs really well, then there's no reason not to make them a bomb dog. So a lot of times it's a lab, uh, you know, kind of the, some of the setters, uh, so the, those will be the real weird ones that you see out there. Um, so the the dual purpose is usually a bite and a bomb. So they'll do bite work, attack work, and then they also do odor detection for bombs or drugs. And you'll see a lot of those with the MPs. Now the SF MPCs, those are the multi-purpose canines. Ours do three things. They do bomb, bite, and man tracking. So they're attack dogs. Uh, all manner of attacking, CQB, anything. Uh, the bomb detection, they're trained pretty much on any known explosive. Um, they're, they're trained to detect the explosive, move to the explosive, and indicate where the explosive is at to the handler. And then, for the again, for the attack work, they're trained on all types of attack work, even more than probably the dual-purpose dogs, because we train them uh, using helicopters. We train them on fast roping. We train them... Uh, Lots of gunfire, right? Because I've seen the pictures of free falling or you know jumping with the dogs. That's something you guys do too, right? The national units do. The uh, the SF units don't. We we don't quite have the uh, financial backing to be able to push that training through, and then also the issues that would come up with doing that and having and possibly not losing a dog likes life, but having an issue with a dog. Uh, so we try to keep them that. From that, we do fast rope with them and do all the other insertion techniques, but we haven't free-falled with them yet. I know there's programs going on that, that we're looking into it, and then I know some of the national guys have. Yeah, that's all good stuff. I know people want to hear more about these working dogs and military dogs, especially uh, special operations dogs. So, Travis, I just want to thank you for coming on and taking out the time. And also, I want to congratulate you on your retirement. I know you just got out thank of the you. Army. After was it twenty years? Twenty years. Twenty years. It was. It's been a, like I've said a couple times. It was. A, it was a crazy ride. I wouldn't have traded anything in the world. You know, I got to do what I wanted to do for twenty years. So now it's time to go find something else to do. Nice. Travis, what's what's next for you right now? I mean, what's what's on the uh, the plate right now? Good question. Um, I got a few things that I'm working on uh, to. To see some irons in the fire, take a little break first off. You know, it's been 20 years since I've really not had anything <laughs> to do. So take a little break and just kind of see where things fall right now. Not really hunting very much initially, but then that, there's, there'll be a few things coming before too long. Awesome. Nice. So, Travis, can you drop your social media handles and any email or point of contact you, you would like for people to have? Yeah, so my Instagram is livehard18d, that's L-I-V-E-H-A-R-D, 18D. And on there, you'll see some of the pictures of Rocco and me in, in Afghanistan and some of the other places if you guys are interested. And if you want to know anything else, just DM me on there. 
Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, for the for the episode, I'll post a picture of you with one of the dogs, and um, people can can see it. All right, Trev. I just want to thank you for coming on, bro. Yeah, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you guys for having me. And hopefully, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Hey, it's always good to have uh, former soft guys on, but especially good friends and and friends that have made a huge contribution to special operations, and you know. Continue success to Travis in his in his next journey, you know, coming out of the military. And, and thank you for his service. Um, as we close out this episode, we let, we want to start giving tips like we have before. We get a lot of questions on direct messages and email on what guys can do to prepare for special forces selection, but also um, what guys can do, guys and gals that can do who want to join the military. So this week we'll talk about nutrition. And some things that you can do during uh, long duration, uh, I call them, you know, ruck marches or force marches, where you're moving a long extended period of time with, you know, a rucksack, typically around 45 pounds or more on your back. So you have to treat, you know, when you're when you're rucking, it's a long range endurance event. It's just like any endurance event, whether it be running, biking, swimming, you have to treat it like it's an endurance athletic event. One of the biggest mistakes that I've experienced in the military and in special operations is the lack of education of taking what's proven in the civilian sector and athletic programs and races, you know, athletic performance and not taking that nutritional information that that's helped those guys succeed and applying it to the military. I, I look at military you know, infantry, special operations, combat arms as basically as athletes. And, and I would treat them as such. So when I looked at training up for a specific selection, I was looking at, uh, I was reading up on endurance, uh, nutrition and ways to sustain your glycogen levels, or your blood sugar levels to fuel your body through the duration of a long range movement. So one of the things, this is just my, my take on it. I won't bog you down with uh, the science behind it, but in essence, you want to keep your blood sugar high. I mean, you want to keep your energy levels high. You don't want to crash out because once you deplete all the glycogen or sugar in, in your liver and you and you burn your your fuel stores, you'll you'll bonk or zonk or you know you'll crash, and it's hard to recover from that once once that process has started. So what I like to do is let's say I'm walking um, two plus hours. Um, beyond the limit of my body's immediate fuel storage. I typically, before I start the long range movement, will will be eating prior to the event starting some kind of carbohydrate. Uh, I I like to use power bars because they're simple. They're small. Um, Actually, I think power bar has like different grades of sugar and uh, different, you know, inputs of nutrition that you could used to scale kind of like the duration of your, of the exercise. But what I do is my rule of thumb is every hour. So like if I'm doing a three, three hour movement in the beginning, uh, the, at the two hour point and at the uh, three hour point, I will take in a solid, uh, food store, whether that be a power bar, half a power bar, I'll take that with water and sustain my fuel throughout the duration. 
And you'll you'll do that even if you're not particularly hungry. You'll do that just to, yeah. to maintain. Yeah, and that's and that's the key because typically your body, you know, once once it starts to deplete itself of energy, you kind of you don't crave uh, food to, until you get to that glycogen stores being depleted, and then right. you can almost feel it because it's a sensation like if you've gone hiking for a long day, and then you know sugar hits your mouth. It almost even the way your your mouth, which is the first digestive digestive uh, stage, just devours that sugar and tries to get it in your in your bloodstream. So even if you're not hungry, I'm basically topping off the fuel stores that I have with a solid, and that's every hour. Um, every thirty minutes, I'll take in a liquid carb, and I like to use the gel shots. They sell them at RAI, GNC, all these different places. But the gel shots are convenient because they're small, they're packable, and you can get it inside your system fast without chomping on something. And it's just it's just an easier way to get it in your system. And then I take that with water. And and what I like to do throughout the duration of a movement is to have a good balance of water and carbohydrates uh, as I as I'm progressing through the endurance event. The the worst thing you could do is assume in the military, we're the worst at it, is assume that water is the reason that you're feeling tired or fatigued. And I, and I brought this up in a prior podcast that, you know, when I first came in the military, everybody thought that water was the way that you got out of being depleted of energy. Or if you were feeling tired, hungry, weak, you needed to take a knee and drink water. And that was the solution. And I, I even remember drill sergeants force hydrating us with one quart canteens of water. I mean, that technique has actually killed. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's not, it's not philosophy. It's science. It's actually killed soldiers because um, their body doesn't need more water. When you flush your system with more water, when your body needs um, potassium uh, sugars, you know, all the things that are in electrolytes, you're actually just continuing to flush and further, exacerbating the situation. So car- carbohydrates and, and with the right balance of, uh, of liquid of water is the key to sustaining your long range endurance. And, and John, I know you have a specific take on it cause your, your background. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, in the, in the calisthenics world, and and this is kind of the the difference for me when with like weightlifting and calisthenics. When we're out there training in the park, uh, and we train in the park in the winter as well. So it, you know it could be twenty five degrees out, we're still hitting the bars. So when you're training calisthenics, usually we're hitting high repetitions of pull ups, push ups, dips, with a combination of static holds which was just more on the gymnastic side. So you're burning a lot of energy. You need energy. So a lot of times, you know, we're, we're out there for an hour and a half, two hours. And, you know, we just did 400 push-ups, 400 pull-ups, 300 dips, a bunch of squats and, and some other gymnastic movements. And we're completely spent. And I, I feel like it gives you that same effect of uh you know a high intensity cardio workout like like we've hit uh high intensity sets 
where guys had to literally lay down on the bench or the floor and we're just dumping water on their heads. Um, and, and that's because it's not, it's not exactly like weightlifting. It's a little different. So even doing that, you, you need to sustain a high level of energy or you'll zonk out, like you said. So yeah, that, that's great advice. All right. So that's the end of the episode. Um, we want to thank Travis for coming on. And we want to thank all the listeners out there for subscribing, downloading, commenting. We really appreciate the great feedback we've been getting. And and, and getting that feedback, it allows us to continue to put our, our best efforts into putting out the best show. So if you want to reach out to Mike, if you want to reach out to either one of us for anything you heard on the podcast, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. Uh, both of us have access and we respond to every email. Uh, Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Facebook is Fieldcraft LLC. And his Instagram is soft survivor. That's SOF survivor. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. And my Instagram is IG Recon. So we'll see you guys in a couple of days and we have some interesting episodes planned. So peace.